welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. Uh, one of my more popular guests of 2020, or one of my favorite guests of 2020, was Dr. Safedine Hamos. Uh, Safedine Hamos, I pronounced that too quickly, author of the Bitcoin Standard. I've been following his work uh, ever since, and I've been really impressed by how insightful he is about energy, uh, as well as how what he calls fiat, which I think of as the government dictating different aspects of our lives how that not only negatively affects uh, money, which is his focus, but affects every other realm of life. And he has a new book, and I think he might be even having some sort of Kickstarter for it, so we'll ask him, uh, called The Fiat Standard, which I've been reading and really enjoying. And I think even, you know, whatever you agree or disagree with, it's really fascinating and makes all kinds of claims that are worth uh, exploring. So I thought I'd bring him on to discuss how fiat uh, affects life. Uh, Safedine, welcome back to Power Hour. Thank you so much for having me, Alex. It's always fun to talk to you. All right. I'm looking forward to this one. There's a lot to cover. Uh, first, I want to talk about the state of energy, the energy conversation around uh, Bitcoin. And, you know, one of the things I'm happiest about in this world is that more people seem to be open to my ideas about energy. And, you know, you are one of the people I think whom I've influenced somewhat. And in any case, you're saying really true things about energy and you seem to be getting uh, traction as well. And yet at the same time, there is this big push against the use of energy, particularly fossil fuel energy and Bitcoin as exemplified by Elon Musk uh, saying that he's no longer accepting Bitcoin as payment. So can you tell us about the state of the energy conversation and how we're doing? Yeah, um, it's been fascinating watching this uh, subject unfold. And I think uh, your insights and your book have come in uh, quite helpful. Um, and I think, you know, the, it's becoming a lot more popular, that viewpoint, you know, the moral case that you make for fossil fuels and uh, approaching the question from the perspective of human flourishing. I think it's um, proven quite popular among Bitcoiners. I think people are, are really... Uh, uh, it's really resonating with people because I think it makes a lot of sense. And I think because Bitcoiners, um, you know, if you're already at the point where you are in Bitcoin and you run your own Bitcoin full node and you've invested part of your uh, money in Bitcoin, you are um, most likely um, receptive to ideas that are not very uh, common in the mainstream. And also, you're highly likely to follow a mentality of verify rather than trust. The way that Bitcoin works is that it's a system of relentless verification where people are just verifying everything that is happening at all times. And that's how it works. You know, you run a node that will, on your computer, will install... Um, It'll take up hundreds of gigabytes of uh, data in order to have a full record of every transaction and in order to know exactly what is going on. And that's how the system keeps everybody honest. Uh, it trusts nobody. There's no authority. By the word of nobody, everybody verifies everything and uh, only the truth emerges. And so that kind of mentality with Bitcoin is, um, you know, it selects for a certain kind of mentality and a certain kind of mentality that's quite rational about approaching uh, questions and uh, so these people are, uh, you know, they're running the numbers on the environmentalists claim. And I think the environmentalists are having a hard time making a lot of traction in the Bitcoin uh, space. Um, you know, there's, there is, of course, the um, traditional um, environmental aspect on Bitcoin mining, which is that, uh, as you would expect, this is consuming energy, therefore it's bad, therefore we need to shut it down, we need to find a way to stop it from happening. But... 
Um, uh, you know, I think uh, many people are beginning to really um, ask the question, well, why should we shut it down? And why shouldn't we shut down other things? You know, why do you get to fly on an airplane to go on a vacation? I think my Bitcoin is more important than your vacation. Why should you have a jacuzzi? Why should you have a washing machine? Um, you know, why don't we just have, uh, you know, either we're going to have one central committee that's going to decide who gets to spend energy on what, or we're going to understand that this is, um, you know, this is an economic process that anybody can conduct anywhere. Anybody can generate energy in a variety of ways, and then they can use it as they see fit. And if they're willing to pay for it, then clearly it's valuable enough for them. So I think that perspective is really making its way in Bitcoin. And, you know, you have um, Elon Musk. He made um, a, a stunt uh, around this where um, he went into Bitcoin. He bought some Bitcoin. He put it on his company's balance sheet. And then he proceeded to uh, start talking up Bitcoin. Then he got into um, basically an altcoin, which is effectively a scam coin, as we like to call it. Um, and he started promoting that. And then it got a lot of people on board um, when it went up a lot. But of course, um, you know, the tricky part is maintaining that. And that's where these different these other coins have a hard part competing with Bitcoin because because of Bitcoin's decentralized nature, it's very hard for anybody to compromise it, whereas the other coins, they're uh, much uh, easier to mess with. And it's not very clear what happens with the supply of these coins in the long run. So um, uh, what he also did was that he started saying that, you know, he's moving away from Bitcoin because he's realizing that it's consuming a lot of energy, which is, of course, pretty rich coming from somebody who launches <laughs> rockets into the sea for fun. Um, and no discernible economic benefit yet. Um, and, you know, he runs cars that consume an enormous amount of energy in order to be manufactured, as you know, and as you've pointed out. So there's an enormous hypocrisy there, of course. Um, but I think it's, um, it, it's really uh, exposed him for being a little bit of a charlatan because when he was talking about Bitcoin and other digital currencies, it was clear that, you know, this guy really has no idea what he's talking about. But um, he talks about it in a way that makes him appear authoritative to um, the kind of people that are impressed by him. And um, I think people are really um, getting um, much more critical about this uh, question. And it's, um, it's, 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 it's driving people to question the entire premise of the idea that we must sacrifice energy use in order to save the planet, you know. First of all, where's the evidence that this is actually going to be catastrophic for the planet if we don't stop? And secondly, what exactly are the costs of us not consuming energy? When you start thinking about it realistically, as you do in your book, it, it's very clear that the trade-off uh, is uh, the, the trade-off being demanded by the environmentalists is absolutely insane. You know, one, yeah, so it's you know interesting, like even the language, you know, it's like save the planet, like. It's you know the idea is save the planet from human beings, which basically means like save the unimpacted planet from the evil human impactors. Versus if, if it's save the planet as a livable place for human beings, well we're doing better than saving it. We're improving it dramatically. One one thing I've been thinking about lately, um, with regard to the um, indifference to human flourishing, is no still nobody talks about billions of people with no energy like there's this whole narrative of okay a bunch of us seem to be using energy how can we use less of it or how can we substitute it for this thing that may or may not be cost effective but there's just no concern for billions of people developing and i think as i pointed out in moral case 
like if you take that back 40 years, it's obviously murderous. If you're just saying, oh, all these people in China, all these people in India, they can't use energy to industrialize. And yet that's exactly what we're saying. I mean, if we're saying the world needs less energy in a world where billions are energy starved, we're saying just, you know, worse than genocide. And it's just it, one thing I've just noticed, it just shows how philosophical it is. Nobody cares at all. Like nobody, the whole discussion of energy is like, how do we get rid of our impact on climate? Like the whole goal is eliminating our impact on nature, not advancing human flourishing. And so it just reinforces to me that this whole discussion is a philosophically corrupted discussion. It's not at all a scientific discussion. Absolutely. It's it's very, very true. I think the, the, the fundamental uh, premises on which the perspective is based, you know, there's a lot of emotional manipulation, a lot of, you know, pictures of polar bears looking sad, and that can pull at people's heartstrings. But the fundamental basis, as you point out in your book, is that uh, what you're saying is that, you know, we care about this abstract uh, vision of this virgin earth that is unpolluted by human beings more than we care about the survival of human beings. And um, you're absolutely correct in terms of, uh, you know, you think about the the, the impact this has on uh, people in the developing world. If you look at what the World Bank and other uh, development organizations have been doing for the past few decades when it comes to uh, energy, they've been essentially, um, you know, the concern has not been how do we get these places uh, to have cheap affordable, reliable energy. The concern is how do we get them to transition to green energy immediately so that they skip the, you know, the, that inconvenient phase that we in the West had to go through, which is, you know, the, this transitory period of utilizing hydrocarbon energy, which, you know, we're, we're stuck with for a while now because it's going to take us a while to upgrade, but we're going to do them a favor and get them started on solar straight away. You know, imagine place that doesn't have an actual power plant is getting enormously expensive solar panels um, in, in the middle of extremely poor conditions. And of course, uh, you know, these, these projects are financed by all these international organizations that are not accountable to anybody because they get their money from governments that just essentially print that money. It's fiat money. It's fake money. They just get handed it. And so there's zero accountability in any real sense. The, the, and of course, the sickening part is that they get these countries in debt for these projects. So, you know, there's hundreds of millions of dollars in solar energy panel projects being carried out in developing countries that can't afford them, that shouldn't be able to afford them. It makes zero sense, you know, for that kind of money, they could be getting extremely reliable natural gas or coal plants that um, provide 24-7 energy. But um, because of all of this silly virtue signaling, uh, they end up uh, getting into debt for tens or hundreds of millions of dollars for power plants that fall apart in five, 10 years and don't produce reliable power. Yeah, it's really it's really sad. So I'm very glad to see the, the Bitcoin world uh, being receptive because it's... it's uh, you know, there's a lot of discussion. I mean, that that area of the world is getting more and more uh, attention. So it's good to see that rational people in that area are learning about how to actually think about energy from a human uh, perspective versus an anti-human perspective. All right, let's talk about uh, fiat standard. And first, just so I don't forget, tell us about the project that you're asking people to support right now and where that is. Yeah, so um, I've been working on this book since I published the Bitcoin Standard, which was uh, three years ago now. 
um, and it's uh, it's done more or less. It's just going through one last round of editing, and then it's going to be hitting the printers in a couple of months. And so uh, I've launched the Kickstarter where people can order it, uh, order uh, copies, pre-order copies of the book. You can get the first draft of the book right now, and then you'll get the digital book um in uh, i think in november or december something like that and then the printed book should be out in uh, december and um yeah so it's a way for people to support it because i'm self-publishing this book because i think um this is another issue which i think you know the internet is liberating um going through traditional publishers is um, highly inconvenient and i think self-publishing is a much better option so i'm doing this was bitcoin know, of, was bitcoin standard a traditional publisher Yes, it was published with Wiley, academic publisher. I mean, they they must be, it seems like it did quite well. They must be happy with it. They are. They're uh, much happier than me, obviously, because they uh, make uh, more of the royalties. And uh, But, you know, it was it's an academic publisher, and I was in academia at that time, and I was still, um, I, I still hadn't decided to burn my bridges with academia. I mm -hmm. thought, you know, getting published with an academic publisher would uh, help me get tenure and keep my job. But then eventually I ended up quitting the job anyway. But they got to keep the rights to the book, which is a mistake that I intend on not repeating with any of my next books. I'm just going to self-publish them myself. Because then you can share the information much more easily. You can uh, organize uh, printing and you can provide people with bulk orders and copies. Um, it's, uh, it's much more convenient. Makes sense. Oh, so sorry. I think I, I interrupted. So um, anything else we should know about the, the project and where people can go? Oh yeah, you can just go to safeddean.com, my website, slash Kickstarter, and then you'll see the link that'll take you to the Kickstarter page where you can uh, contribute and um, get the digital book or the physical book or a signed hardcover uh, to be delivered by Christmas. Okay, and spell Saifedean, uh, just so everyone knows. S-A-I-F-E-D-E-A-N. All right. Perfect. So let's let's jump into this issue of um, fiat. As, as I've said a couple of times publicly, I'm very excited that this term is getting more popular. I really noticed this on a recent Tim Ferriss podcast, where I forget the exact line, but he was he was talking to um, that guy Bology, and he was talking. They were talking about fiat currency, and you know, Tim Ferriss made this joke like, "Oh, you know, fiat used to be you know, we used to think of it as a shitty car, and now we think of it as a shitty currency." And I just, I like, I like, I think it's a very powerful modifier. Obviously you do too, because you have a book where like every <laughs> chapter is Fiat X, Fiat Y, Fiat Z. So tell us what, what Fiat is and why it's such a powerful uh, concept. Yeah. So Fiat uh, is a Latin word that means uh, dictate or order, a government order essentially. And um, it is the term that is used to describe government money because it is money that gets its value not on the free market, but it gets its value by government order. And so the government says that this piece of paper is um, uh, legal tender, and then you're, you're forced to accept it for payments and you have to pay taxes with it. And they institute all kinds of regulatory um, uh, laws and regulations in order to make sure that this gets treated as money, as opposed to what the market would choose, which historically has been gold and silver. So, um, you know, Bitcoin comes from that kind of debate. If you really want to, the, the, the short summary of what Bitcoin is, is that Bitcoin is um, a technology for killing fiat money. So we used to be on a gold standard and that's when we had the industrial revolution. We had the golden era, era 
where human lives improved massively. Everything was going great uh, in terms of technological advancement, capital accumulation, global trade, and um, global capital markets. Money was spreading all over the world. And um, and by the way, we'll one... talk about education and science also improving dramatically, yeah. despite the mythology that it, it depends on the modern government. Absolutely. So 19th century, you know, we had the Industrial Revolution come out of England. Uh, and that was a place that had zero uh, government funding for science that just didn't exist on the gold standard. You know, the government couldn't print money. And so the notion of government going around and formulating society into what voters want was just an alien concept at that time. Um, money w remained in people's hands and then people could do what they wanted with it. And that meant a lot more capital in people's hands. And that meant the industrial revolution and it meant capitalism. It meant uh, everybody being able to accumulate increasing amounts of capital for generation after generation after generation. So then um, 1914 comes about and um, I detail the history in my book to an extent, but basically the world goes off the gold standard and we move toward the monetary standard. And, you know, it takes about 60 years to complete the transition. In 1973, it's complete where uh, we move to a dollar standard. And now there's no link to gold. You know, it used to be the money was linked to gold and there were certain degrees of linkage between money and gold up until the 1970s decreasing strength of backing effectively. But by 1973, that was it. There was no more uh, link to gold whatsoever to the money. And effectively, we moved to a form of money that was money by fiat because of government order. And so um, in the Bitcoin standard, what I did was that I, um, you know, I thought about writing a book that explains Bitcoin. And I thought of, you know, I have a background in engineering and I have a background in economics. And I thought, you know, I'm going to look at this system try and understand it, and then try and explain it in plain English to a readership that is uh, not necessarily well-informed in uh, these topics. And I want it to be a general book that anybody could read, well, anybody within reason, uh, could read and um, you know come up with a good understanding of the why of Bitcoin. Why does Bitcoin work in a certain way? What does it accomplish? And so it was a, there was an element of... Um, trying to you know describe a technology almost like technology writing to the bitcoin standard and so uh, for my next book i decided that i was going to do the same thing with fiat which you know you don't think of the current global monetary system as being something you'd like you'd write about in that sense because it um, it emerged through a hodgepodge of political compromises and uh, um, you know, defaults and uh, governments covering up their tracks and government lies and uh, deception here and there. And we ended up with this strange monster that uh, kicks along today. But I thought, you know, let's describe how does this thing actually function? And then what are the implications of running a society with this monetary system? Because you can think of the monetary system as being like the operating system of your computer. It's, it's, it's one half of every trade is money. And so the way that the money functions will influence every trade. And I discuss this in detail in the Bitcoin standard. And, you know, I make the difference between gold and uh, fiat. And then I dwell on this even more in the fiat standard by uh, getting into detail of many different ways in life in which uh, fiat distorts markets. And one of these is energy, of course. I'm strongly inspired by your work, I should always uh, I always oh, say. Oh, thank you. So, yeah, one, one theme I want to 
uh, stress that really comes from my uh, philosophical background is just that you know human beings basically survive through generating and acting on good ideas. Like you know we we have to like it's we don't have instinct to tell us how to flourish, so we need to figure it out. We need to figure out mainly how to create value uh, in the world. And yeah, this is this is a function of the mind. And I think it's important that every activity we do ultimately to do it successfully ultimately depends on the, the ability to think accurately and come up with good ideas. And I think with money in particular, people don't think of it as like, oh, this is a human creation that can be good or bad. Uh, but it really is, you know, as you talk about really well in Bitcoin standard, you know, it's, it's, you're figuring out how to do indirect exchange. So direct exchange is barter, which is inefficient for a million reasons. And so human beings have to figure out, okay, what's a, what's a good idea for how I can exchange, you know, philosophical advice for an iPhone. And it's not like there's nothing that like, that's automatically figured out. You have to like, people need to be free to do what they think is best. And then that will evolve over time. And I think this is going to be a theme that we see, like if for the good ideas to prevail, people have to be free to figure them out and act on them. And then they also uh, have to evolve. And so like something like Bitcoin, you know, you're arguing this is an evolution in money. This has certain attributes that even gold uh, doesn't. And so I want to take that idea, like the importance of, you know, people being free to come up with their own ideas and act on them to these other areas. And let's start off. And so fiat means like the government dictates that, which means there's no real individual thought. So let's talk about education because it's it's considered totally safe for the government to dictate what ideas we are taught from ages K through PhD. And like, this is considered, oh, this is good. Um, what's your perspective on what fiat education does? Yeah, so um, I think you know the, um, the the most important thing in economics is to consider the opportunity cost of everything. And so um, the world of fiat has spent a century um, drumming the understanding of opportunity cost out of people's minds by um, giving them the idea that we live in a world in which um, government can act with complete uh, command of society's resources at no cost. In other words, if you wanted something, then all you needed to do was to vote for it. And then if you just vote for the right people, then they'll pass along and that thing will be true. And if you don't have something, it's only because the bastards in power aren't passing the right laws to give you the things that you want. And it's only a matter of, you know, organizing yourself to get them in power. And so um, people don't really think of the opportunity cost of um, most things that they want their government to provide. But what I do in this book is I imagine, is, you know, I, st I start with a, thinking about it uh, as an economic distortion. What happens when you have government commanding and dictating what happens with um, education? So first of all, at, um, at, you know, at elementary level education, what ends up happening is that you have an enormous amount of money that is being dedicated to this thing we call education. And that ends up being just one giant bureaucracy that has guaranteed income and faces no uh, responsibilities and no accountability in how it functions because it gets its money from by fiat. You know, they don't have to satisfy their customers because the customers aren't the one paying their bills, you know, or they're not paying them directly. They're paying the bills by taxes and the taxes go to the government and the government gives it to the bureaucracy. And so 
you know, um, fiat makes you think that it's free, that education is free. But in reality, the resources are being taken from people. And so people are paying for education. Uh, and some people are may, paying more than the rest. But the effect of taking it away from uh, making it, from, from making the people who benefit from it pay for it to the people who provide it is that the people who provide it stop being accountable to the people who benefit. And then they can do whatever they want. And that's basically what um, you see with education. And that's why, you know, you see that the bureaucracy around public schooling in the U.S. and all over the world, they resist any kind of reform that gives parents choice because that threatens their cushy, lucrative uh, monopoly position that they have. So you can then extrapolate this onto um, higher education and then see the impact that it would have on universities. Um, we see the same kind of thing happening in, in universities in which the financing of the universities comes from predominantly from government research funding. And, you know, that sounds, even among many libertarians, this is one of the things that they'll tell you, uh, well, this is this is justified uh, use of government. If you're going to have government do something, that they should be financing research and financing science and financing discovery. And it sounds like it's uh, reasonable. You know, you, you'd want them, you'd want to have more of that stuff. So let's subsidize it and we'll get more of it. But at what cost? Well, it, you, first of all, you're not getting it for free. And all you're doing it is, again, you're turning it from being responsive to the demands of the market, of the people that are supposed to be serving, and turning it into being responsive to the demands of the bureaucracy financing it. And then making that bureaucracy insulated from free market competition from having to deliver results. So the result is, you look at universities today and you know you see university professors are publishing endless amounts of papers because the way that academic research is um, uh, weighed, you know, there's no market that is buying those papers from uh, people based on the value that these papers produce. Um, they're being published in academic journals and you need to tick boxes where you publish a certain amount of papers in order to get a job at a university. And then the university gets the money based on how much, um, you know, how many uh, researchers it has who have published how much papers. So the universities have an incentive to have a lot more publications going because they want to hire more people and they want to get more funding. And the professors have obviously an incentive to get more publications because that gives them a job. And of course, the academic journal mafia, academic publication mafia, has an enormous incentive to keep producing those things because... These things are a great example of modern slave labor, where the academics work to produce this research and the academics review it for one another and spend enormous amounts of time producing these things. And they don't get paid by the journals. In fact, many times they actually have to pay the journal to even consider their articles. And then uh, <laughs> the academic publishers will then sell the journals to the universities at exorbitant prices. And um, but the whole thing keeps going because the universities want to get those expensive subscriptions because when they do it, they get good ratings in the academic publications that issue university ratings. And so it's an entire system that is run on fiat money because the money is not coming from the consumer. It's not coming from, uh, you know, what people are actually studying and learning and how they're uh, um, doing in the in the market, a lot of the money is coming from above. It faces zero opportunity costs; it's just being printed, and it's being handed out based on metrics. And so, all of academia has essentially become how to game those metrics in order to get more of that funding. And everybody agrees; everybody else deserves more funding. 
And so this is how you end up with the current state of academic research, wherein there's an enormous amount of papers being published. I mean, you couldn't, even if you wanted to do absolutely nothing else in your life, but keep up with all the papers that are being published in a field, you would not have the time to, you know, just in economics, there are maybe hundreds of thousands of pages being published every month in all the academic journals. And most of it is unreadable and most of it is not read by anybody. Nobody reads that stuff except the people who um, are in the field who are trying to publish responses to it to get published with it. But you end up with an enormous overproduction of the papers that matter in terms of the metric, but you end up with enormous underproduction of actual knowledge, actual useful science, actual useful research that can help uh, provide economic value for people in the world because there's no market test to do that. The money comes from fiat, by fiat. I want to go into some depth in the different stages in terms of the value of having a market. So just give my perspective on it, which is, you know, in a market really, but really that just really means under freedom. You know, there are at least two things that have to happen and that are allowed to happen. So one is that because you don't get, you can't steal other people's stuff, you have to offer value. Like that's one huge thing. Like when people are free, you actually have to offer value to gain value. And the other is you are free to create value as you judge best. And what I see with fiat is it is it destroys both of those. It doesn't require you to offer value and it doesn't allow you to become free to create value. So let's talk about even early education because my vision, I'm curious what you think of this, my vision is like in a free society, even with early education, if people really have to pay for it, you have to offer value in a way where you're convincing the parents that this is going to help their child in the long run and not to succeed in some establishment where the government's just giving away a bunch of money, but like where they actually have to have useful skills. And as I said before, this is a hard thing to figure out. And I imagine it would evolve. So you look at today and I would imagine that, you know, schools would really have to say, hey, like, this is how it's, I mean, it can be like, this is going to be emotionally valuable, but it really has to be like, okay, this is the world we're li- we're going to come into. You know, it's really good to be able to do math and to be able to program and these other things. And like, if you go to our school, your kid is going to somehow benefit in a way that will enable them to create value uh, in the future versus today, it's just the government just randomly decides what an education is. It's completely archaic and was never a good idea the way they do it. And there's no way it's gonna evolve if like Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden and Donald Trump are ultimately in, uh, in charge of what constitutes a good education. So what are your thoughts on this? Absolutely. I think this is really, um, in, in both books, I emphasize this point that under hard money, when nobody in society has the ability to click print and make money, nobody can make money. Uh, nobody can print money. Nobody can increase the supply of money or the increase of the supply of money is extremely expensive. In that kind of system, the vast majority of people end up having to be useful to one another. That's it. That's the way to have nice things. If you want nice things, you go and you give people nice things, and then you get nice things in return. And everybody learns that. Sim- sounds simple. <laughs> it good. is simple and good, and it's great, and it's how all civilizations functioned. And then you break that feedback loop <laughs> by bringing in a form of money that can be created at will by certain people that are connected to power. And then you break all of that incentive structure. Then suddenly you get you have generations of people who grow up thinking that wealth is something that you get 
if you are connected to power. Wealth is something that you get if you manage to vote for the right people, if you manage to get special benefits from government. Um, and, and, and culturally, people start, you know, you see this developing over the 20th century where it got to a point where everybody just feels entitled to everything. That, uh, you know, I was born, give me nice things. Why can't I have nice things? I've, I've already been born. Um, and, and very little understanding of the fact that, oh, you actually, you know, somebody has to actually work for those things and people have no reason to give you all of those things. But uh, when, when government and a lot of the institutions of government can function without having to um, provide value, well, then a lot of other people start getting that idea. Um, and I think that's, that's really the, um, you know, going back to our discussion about Bitcoin, this is kind of the... This is kind of why I think Bitcoiners are going to be much better at understanding the energy uh, argument because there's a very, very strong honesty to um, working, living life on a Bitcoin standard. You know, there's only 21 million Bitcoins. There's never going to be more than 21 million Bitcoins. And you can run software on your computer that'll make you figure out exactly how many you own at every second and will secure every one of your Bitcoins for you. And we'll make sure that nobody else can um, mess with it. That just, and I can see it happen to people. I can see how it just switches people's mind and makes them much more productive, much more honest, much more uh, future-oriented. I think it really the key thing is that it lowers people's time preference, and I think it 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 makes them far more um, far more honest in the way that they deal with the world. And I think that's. Uh, that's, I think, the, the the amazing promise of Bitcoin on top of all the technological aspects. It's just the social impact that it has. Oh, there's so much more to talk about education. I just want to read a passage, like one of my favorites from your book, just to give people a flavor of it. And this is, I want you to listen to every word because I think it's a very exact, although it's very rough on universities. So if you're inclined to think that modern universities are this infinite store of uh, source of value, then you might be offended uh, by this. But if you like, I think both of I have both of us have been to elite universities, and you think there's mostly value destruction going on, certainly as far as what's taught, uh, then you might be more sympathetic. So it says, "Quote: After a century, it is fair to say fiat has successfully destroyed the modern university as a center of learning and research, and turned it into a make-work program for nerds, make-work welfare program for nerds, a highly overpriced credential mill, an inescapable debt trap, a country club experience." a political indoctrination camp, and a corporate advertisement agency. So maybe just elaborate a little bit on all of these I think are true, but the country club experience and political indoctrination camp elements of it. Well, I mean, I think um, you look at universities because of the amount of financing that they can secure and because um, students can secure low credit, uh, low interest rate credit. And this is, of course, the main way in which uh, universities are subsidized. And that's why we have an overproduction of universities and university and, graduates. And the price, I mean, the prices are just unbelievable. I mean, when I went, it was like 30K yeah. a year all in. And that just seemed completely unbelievable. And now it's got to be like 70 or 80 for if you want to yeah. go to Duke. It's a good thing there's no inflation, though. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't go but, into the CPI. I don't think college goes into the CPI, the consumer yeah. price. Exactly. Um, but yeah, the prices continue to go up because effectively, um, you, you know, you're you're giving 18 year olds the chance to get into debt uh, at, at very lucrative rates. And in a sense, I can understand why it makes sense, because the way it works in fiat, like after writing this book, I think one of the most important conclusions I came up with, or, or, or maybe the key 
um, motivating idea behind this book is to think of the process of mining fiat as being lending. You know, with gold, you have miners who go and dig for it and then refine it and you have gold coins. With Bitcoin, we have miners who perform very complicated mathematical operations and then um, get the new coins according to a schedule. But with uh, fiat, the way that it is mined is through the issuance of debt. And so every time you get into debt for anything, somebody is issuing new debt, somebody's making new money. So somebody's getting the chance to have a money printer effectively and bring new dollars into supply. Of course, they're not physical dollars. It's not a literal printer. I mean it uh, figuratively. But new dollars are coming into supply every time a loan is made. And that's why it makes sense for you to take on as much low interest uh, credit as you possibly can. And that's why everybody as individuals, companies, and uh, governments at all levels is in debt. Because every time you get into debt, somebody can print money. And if you buy your house by paying money cash, nobody gets to print money. Whereas if you buy it by taking on a loan, somebody gets to print money. So you get a better deal in the house. That's why everybody pays their money in cash. Uh, sorry, but that's why nobody pays cash for a house. Everybody pays uh, in debt. And so in a sense, when you tell 18-year-olds, you know, here's very low interest rate uh, debt, and go spend four years in a fun environment. I mean, it is it is a good deal. You're going to meet interesting people. You're going to make connections. You're obviously going to learn a thing or two, and uh, you know your career can uh, take off from that. Obviously, but I think uh, you know think about it in terms of the opportunity cost. If you had that kind of money, you go to an 18 year old and you tell them, "Here's two hundred thousand dollars. Spend the next four years in any industry uh, that you think you want to work in. You know, you want to work in oil and gas, or you want to work in restaurants, or you want to work in." TV, you know, go and get whatever job you can get there. Be the uh, coffee guy or be an intern and spend four years just figuring out what is going on in that industry. And then when you're done, you'll have those $200,000 to do whatever you want in that industry. If you think about the opportunity cost of it in that way, it actually, um, you can see how it can be really expensive. And you can look at it, you know, a lot of people now are beginning to realize this. You know, they lived like king during their college years. Um, because they had all of this um, cheap credit that they could afford and they were at this university that is becoming more and more like a country club experience. And they did a lot of partying, they did a lot of enjoying themselves. And, um, you know, think about the opportunity cost of that in terms of, you know, if you were earning money at that age or if you weren't spending that money and were accumulating savings or accumulating hard assets, over time, this makes a huge difference. You know, so small amounts of savings early on make a huge difference because they compound over time. And so, you know, by the time you're 35, it's going to make a huge difference what you did uh, when you were 20. So, uh, but it's a massive incentive that uh, low interest rate does. And so it ends up causing universities to overindulge in the product that they provide because they're trying their best to attract people. And then students are essentially overspending for it and the debt can't be discharged. But then, of course, you know, the political aspect of it is that, again, it's a bureaucracy that's not accountable. And so you end up with a lot of money uh, coming in, uh, following the agenda of the people that are in power. And that's ultimately what ends up deciding whether you get to keep the money or whether you can't don't get to keep the money because um, it's um, really... Uh, it's not the test of the market that determines what gives you um, returns. It's that. So, of course, that's highly liable to be captured by politics. And then what else was there in the... Uh, well, let me, let me, I want to read another quote, actually, okay. um, that I think captures some of it. And then I want to talk a little bit about science. We probably don't want to much time to talk about energy, but everyone has heard us talk about it. I've certainly heard me talk about energy. 
um, a lot, but I want to read just another, I mean, this, I just recommend this, this, this book has a lot of, at least I find it incredibly entertaining. Now, granted, I'm very pro-freedom. So some people might find it more incendiary, but so I'll just read the country club thing. And then the, the thing about waste. So in, country club is instead of beginning their adult lives by earning and accumulating capital and deferring the country club experience to the time in which they achieve financial independence and can afford it. Young adults are getting in the country club experience first and having to spend the rest of their lives working to pay it off. I think that'll resonate with a lot of people. And then this waste one, I mean, this is another one where it's brutal but exact. And it's quote, it describes quote, the mushrooming of entire fields and departments specialized in producing completely inconsequential and irrelevant noises and marketing them as scholarship. What passes for humanities in the modern university has degenerated into an endless sea of angry grievances and rabid victimology consisting almost entirely of politically correct platitudes and zero substance, producing heaps of graduates with zero marketable skills and a strong talent for finding ways to take offense at everything. I can't think of a better description than what happens in modern humanities. Um, so yeah, I found that excellent. And now let's talk about science because there is this conceit, I think that, oh yeah, well, the humanities are a mess, uh, but science is a dream world and you know we've made it so good. So let me, I wanna ask first about a, a topic you just, I think you discussed a little later in the chapter about science, which is what was science like when it was free? Because people have this idea, oh no, science couldn't happen. We have this awareness that like, oh, there are all these great scientists when we don't have a government, but nobody ties that to like, oh, you can actually have better science. In a, I mean, just think about one thing, like, and then I'll, and then I want to hear your elaboration. But like, you look at, I was looking at a picture of physicists from the early 1900s, and it's like all these legends, you know, that you like Bohr and Einstein and Planck and stuff. And I was thinking, you know, if you think about the level of prosperity and productive ability at that time versus now, we should have 10, 20, 30 times more legendary scientists. And yet what legendary scientists do we have? So the fact that like all these legends made all these amazing discoveries and huge progress when government wasn't involved and now government is involved with, and there's unlimited, almost un, not unlimited resources, I shouldn't say that, but there's far more resources, far more time and far more technology with which to do research. Like, shouldn't that tell us that actually freedom is really good for science? It absolutely should. I think it's uh, it's fascinating that uh, th there's an excellent book by a guy called Terence Keeley. Um, he's, uh, he's written a book called The Economic Laws of Scientific Research. And he's a professor at a private university in England. I think it's the only one or one of the very few ones that's left. And um, he's he, he's an outstanding, outstanding thinker. And he's done a lot of research on this. And uh, the most interesting thing uh, he comes up with is he looks at um, how science was funded during the Industrial Revolution. And guess what? There was no NIH and NSF and all of these government funding bodies out there uh, giving money to people so that they could invent the uh, steam engine. It was uh, people in the workshops making those things and um, improving upon them and people studying them. But uh, it, 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 it was... Uh, there was no public funding of science. And so science was funded by, um, you know, individuals who wanted it. It was funded by enterprise who benefited from it. You know, they financed people to figure out how to build things for them. So there was a lot of practicality because it was embedded in the market, because there wasn't a giant fountain of free money for you to go get 
a sum of if you just write a few papers in a certain way you have to go out there and give value to people you know you have to make an actual engine for people to <laughs> give you money and so you know that's that's what stimulated the most important transformative period probably in human history the industrial revolution it's it was a free market of ideas and a free market of innovations that was taking place in britain at that time and you see uh, Britain's public funding of science only really started in World War One with fiat. And this is, you know, once you get into Bitcoin, you start seeing this and you can't unsee it. You start seeing it everywhere. You know, that everything bad in history happened around 1914 and 1971. You know, basically, whatever bad things happened, they came around the time when the Federal Reserve was established and most countries went off the gold standard and went on to fiat. And then in 1971, when they completely severed the link to gold. And then you see it, like there's a website called uh, What the F Happened in 1971. I've seen they, that. that I do they even answer that? Because it's, it's a fascinating website because it just has all the, I think it just has this list of things. Is there a place where they actually explain it? Because I found it incredibly intriguing the way it was set up. Um, I'm, well, I mean, I, I'm not so sure. I mean, they, they, they've done a bunch of podcasts and oh, they have, okay. they've discussed it. Um, but, you know, they have the picture of Nixon there in 1971 should ring a few bells in people. It's going to be a couple of months. In a couple of months from now, it's going to be a 50-year anniversary of this, uh, August 15, 1971, when they went off the gold standard. It's quite amazing. You see it in all kinds of uh, metrics in society. Um, you see just uh, all these curves started taking different shapes after 1970 with the inflation. And I think it's... Uh, um, also, in 1914, there's a lot of that as well. It's um, it, it it was a massive transformation of uh, the way that society functions. Science is one of them, and another one. Was, so I discuss, and I think you know, um, in the book, I argue, yeah, it's not it's not just the humanities. In fact, if you look at natural sciences, you'll see a lot of uh, politics involved. And I start off the chapter with looking at food science, nutrition science, which I think is a massive. Uh, massive massive phony disaster uh where um basically and, and and it was motivated to a very large extent by wanting people to eat cheap foods so that inflation would be understated in the 1970s and so dietary guidelines went toward you know you should eat all of the cheap industrial stuff that we can mass produce and government policy government farming policy went toward mass production in order to decrease prices. That was the way that they fought inflation in the 1970s, essentially reducing the quality of the food and um, uh, re reducing its price and basically convincing people that it was better for you to eat uh, industrial uh, waste than it is to eat meat. Yeah, though, those are, though that's that's a big issue. Maybe we should have a full discussion about that sometime, but let's talk about the... Um, just what is it, you know, what is your overall view of what it does to the truth of science to instead of having a free competitive market of scientific ideas where you actually have to offer value versus one where it's a fiat non-market where government dictates everything from on high. And I think it's important to stress like all of government, all, like modern science is overwhelmingly government science. And ultimately it is all decided by politicians and by extension voters, like there's no getting around that. So when you hear like, oh, this scientist says, like that is coming from a process where some in effect king dictated what would be explored, how it would be explored, yeah. what would be publicized, et cetera. 
And, and to be fair, it's not really the democratic voters that are determining this. I mean, you're, uh, th these bodies become bureaucracies that are part of government that are quite insulated from democratic politics. And they end up getting captured much more effectively by uh, corporate interests than uh, democratic uh, voters. Um, because, you know, it's a few positions. So if you just give a few people a few jobs, then they'll write the guidelines that you want. Um, but yeah, you, absolutely. I think the the, uh, the the fact that it's not the market that determines what is uh, useful and what is not means that it's a committee that decides by fiat and that doesn't face market tests for the uh, suitability of the policies that it is following. And so, um, you know, that's a perfect setting for groupthink. It's a perfect setting for um, things not to change. It's, it's, it's a way that'll just make it very hard for new ideas to break through because in order to have a new idea, in order to be able to produce a new idea, you have to be part of the system. In order to get into the system, you have to please people that are in the system who do things in a certain way. So there's no there's no entry and exit process in who gets to determine the science. And I, th I like to use nutrition because it's an unbelievable uh, example because, you know, we've had an overwhelming amount of evidence over the last 50 years about the um, just the absolutely horrific uh, guidelines that the U.S. government gives uh, to people all over the world. And, you know, most countries also follow these guidelines because, you know, everybody wants to follow the most uh, updated science and that comes from Harvard. Um, but no matter how many thousands and tens of thousands, millions of people all over the world post their testimonials on the internet saying, you know, I've lost my weight and I've fixed my diabetes by not eating sugary food. You know, diabetes is a disease of sugar metabolism. Don't eat sugars, eat meat instead, and you're going to find yourself feeling much better. I mean, there's an enormous amount of people that have posted this. There's an enormous amount of doctors that have done, done this, an enormous amount of research that has come out about this. And yet the guidelines are completely insulated from this. And the people who make the guidelines have no reason to change because their corporate sponsors want the guidelines in a certain way. And of course, you know, the debate on energy, I think, is another example of this. We see this, you know, you've been making an enormous amount of uh, sense for the past, what has it been now, 10 years where you've yeah, been- 10 or 12 uh, years. 10 and 12 years. And like, you just don't see university professors even engaging. They don't have to engage. They they just keep publishing their papers and their journals and they continue to propagate the same ideas. They don't question the received conventional wisdom, which is uh, fossil fuels are bad. We're destroying the planet and uh, we need to stop and we need to just listen to the politicians who are going to fix this. All of these things are just unquestionable and they have no reason to question them because there's just absolutely no mechanism for correction. There's no mechanism for what is wrong to be discarded and for what is new to um, be adopted. Well, uh, yeah, so uh, let's think about that example, particularly, let's think about particularly the, you know, this issue of climate catastrophe or climate apocalypse. I mean, or is this issue of, of, you know, what greenhouse gases do? Like, imagine a free society where you would actually like, uh, and a free society would be very interested, by the way, in evidence that CO2 emissions were problematic. I mean, above all, because people to engage in economic planning would want to know about it, like insurance companies would want to know about it and builders would want to know about it. Like everyone wanted, so there'd be real value to real science, but you would really have to demonstrate to people that in a mean, on a meaningful time horizon, you can make valuable predictions 
about climate. So certainly people would pursue it and they would invest in it, but you would have to prove value and you'd have to prove value in the face of competition. So if somebody like me comes along and says, hey, guess what? We have the ability to master an enormous amount of climate danger as evidenced by the fact that we've already become 50 times safer from climate thanks largely to fossil fuel use, like given that there's an inordinate burden of proof on any kind of impact from CO2, like it would have to be just a total difference in kind from anything we've ever seen. And oh, by the way, we know CO2 levels have been 10 or 15 times higher. And we know temperatures on the earth have been 25 degrees Fahrenheit warmer. Like they would have to compete with this. And it would be what I've found, which is just, you can't really demonstrate anything resembling climate apocalypse or even climate catastrophe, but you look at like, so there it would be, this, I just imagine this competitive market and we don't have that at all now. You don't have to demonstrate any value except value to politicians and they're not paying with their own money. So they love a system or certain of them love a system where scientists quote unquote are predicting catastrophe and saying that they need more power. Just imagine a king who had like Michael Mann uh, you know, I don't know if as a jester, but like as his, you know, scientist who's like, oh, you need the king to remain in power because he's going to protect you from climate. That basically seems to be our current system where people are paid to predict catastrophe, where the people who pay them then get power. The people who pay them aren't paying their own money. Do you think that's accurate? Absolutely. And there's there's an enormous incentive, which I discuss in the book as well, for being hysterical. I mean, if you go and you say, well, let's study temperatures and sea levels, and you conclude, well, temperatures and sea levels are doing what they've always done. It's well within the range of normal variation that humanity has seen. Sea levels, you know, we have pictures, 150-year-old pictures that show that sea levels are pretty much where they were 150 years ago. We have historical records that show very little variation over time. And whatever has happened in industrial times is quite small next to uh, historical standards. Like if you wrote something like this, you're just basically saying to the uh, financing committee, don't give me more research funding because there's no problem here. You know, the sea levels are fine. But if I go and I write, oh no, the sea levels are rising, we're all going to die, the oceans are going to boil, the uh, sea creatures are all going to die from acidification and uh, you know temp the, the, the arctics are going to become tropical and earth is going to be uninhabitable oh you know tell us more that's what they're going to say no really we need to protect against this if this is real like, I mean, think about it from the perspective of a politician you have no opportunity cost and so anything that happens on your watch is going to be used against you but there's no downside to um, taking precaution. And so you're not the one paying for it. You're not the one who has to um, finance all this stuff. So, of course, you're going to, you know, and, and you don't have to suppose evil intentions. This is just basic bureaucracy. And if you're the guy financing the science, you want to be on top of it. You, if the sea levels are really going to rise and flood all of the world's coastal areas and may leave 80% of the world's humans homeless, You'd want to be on top of this. You do want to finance that, you know, and th that guy is going to get more funding than the guy who says, no, that's a, the sea levels are just doing what they always do. Um, so panicking is more likely to get you published. It's more likely to get you funded. 
And so there's an innate incentive within the system to always panic. And we see this over and over again in, in, in the work of Patrick Moore, whom I've um, come to know through your podcast. Uh, he talks about this, about just how everybody wants to always uh, panic about everything. There's a lot of money to be made from panicking. And so, and, and there's no cost to it. And I think we saw this as well during the coronavirus uh, episode where a lot of uh, people were very brave about sacrificing the livelihood of other people in the sake of uh, precaution. And it was, um, and I think this is just peak fiat mentality. It's, it's, it, we've got it to a point where we had literally a majority of people around the world um, not <laughs> understanding the connection between, you know, people needing to work and people needing to survive. You know, let them, let them just starve. It's okay, but that will kill the virus. And that's what's more important now. One, I just occurred to me as you were saying that the point about panic and hysteria, it's, you know, one thing to make is that in a free market, it's not rewarded. It, it's So you think about predictions, like accurate predictions are rewarded in a market. So you think about something like sea levels, like you don't, it doesn't, you don't get like, I'm not going to pay for sea level predictions that are totally wrong just because they scare people because that's going to make me overbuild. Um, nor am I going to, portray, pay for overly optimistic predictions. I'm going to pay for uh, accurate predictions. The only maybe exception to that is the newspaper. But even there, it's it's because government's so involved in everything, I think, that we all feel like, oh, it's happening to us and we're going to vote on it. And therefore, we feel like, oh, like somebody has an incentive to scare us and then make us vote a certain way. But I hadn't thought of that. But it's, it's like people think of this, oh, there's this innate incentive to catastrophize. But I think it's largely a government uh, incentive. There's actually an eight, in, there's a free incentive to be very, very accurate and not to be overly optimistic or overly pessimistic. I mean, can you imagine like what would happen to Paul Ehrlich in a free prediction market? Like, you know, this is the guy who said England wouldn't exist yeah. like 1990 or something like that. It's crazy. But in, and that's a that maybe should be our final example that Paul Ehrlich is one of the leading ecologists in the world under fiat education, fiat university, and fiat science, yet no one in the free market would ever keep this guy. I mean, he would be made to be a janitor or anything where he cannot actually make predictions in a real market with real free science, free uh, freedom of science, freedom of education, et cetera. No, absolutely. You're absolutely correct. I think um, in a free market, you'd get rewarded enormously if you manage to make uh, accurate predictions about something like this. Um, I, you know, I think um, sea level rise is a particularly important one because the vast majority of the world's most valuable real estate is on the seaside. And these people want to find out. But of course, I'm sure, as you know, a lot of the people that are very convinced that the sea levels are rising are also buying, you know, 10 million. No, it really pisses me off. It really pisses me off because I love living next to the ocean. I would love like where I am in Laguna Beach. I would love to buy some property if these guys would really act on their ideas and start <laughs> selling it to me at discount rates. Absolutely. But somehow, you know, you see the insurance industry and you see the, uh, the billionaires and the millionaires themselves who would like to talk about this they don't seem to be factoring into their real decision making. So they don't believe it. Uh, it, it is serious enough for them to move inland, but they do believe it is serious enough for you to not have reliable electricity 24 seven um, because um, that, that they can afford to live in that alternate reality because of all of this 
uh, distortion of economic reality that takes place in fiat. I think, you know, one way to think about it, and I think I'm going to go back and add this to the book right now, is in a free market, you're rewarded for making predictions. With fiat science, you're rewarded for making models. You make models. I mean, all of this climate and uh, corona and all of this stuff, all of the hysteria was ripped up by people making up models about the future. And then nobody goes back to look back and see how the models did. Because, of course, you know, they're also making 15 models every day and um, n nobody really cares. But th there's zero sense of reality. You know, how accurate were you? How And, and how do you explain why you were wrong and why should we listen to you again? None of that happens. You know, you see all of the people who made the most egregious estimates in all of these things continue to get uh, promoted and continue to get published and continue to get um, taken up and put in front of the tv to uh, scare you it doesn't matter there's absolutely no link and i think really if you've been in energy i think you're frustrated by this and i really want to um you know <laughs> conclude with a message of hope which is that bitcoin fixes this like it's it's really really important if you haven't looked into bitcoin you should really look into it because it it truly fixes this it fixes this on so many levels particularly if you care about energy because on the one hand it's it's it, it takes away from government the ability to print money endlessly and so it takes away from government the ability to distort science and to come up with all of these crazy pseudosciences that we have um, driving people insane all over the world. That's one way. But in terms of energy, I think that the amazing thing that Bitcoin does with uh, energy is that it allows um, it, it allows people who produce energy to uh, people who produce cheap and reliable energy to monetize it anywhere in the world, which I think is an enormously powerful thing because um, as you know, the problem with producing electricity is that electricity is expensive to transport. Uh, you lose part of the electricity for every mile that you move it, and um, it's uh, it's pretty expensive. So um, a lot of energy can be produced in places that are isolated, but it can't be sold. And so Bitcoin allows you to sell energy wherever you are able to produce it. Um, and if you're able to produce it at a low cost, you know, a few cents per kilowatt hour, under 10, preferably under five, if you're able to do it, you're going to be profitable and you're going to be able to monetize it. So at a time when we have all of this insane anti-civilization uh, crusade to destroy all the cheap and reliable energy sources we have and replace them with um, crazy windmills and uh, solar panels. Junk energy. Junk energy, basically, yeah, fiat energy, fiat fuels, as I call them. Uh, we we have Bitcoin as a global bounty program for anybody who's got cheap electricity or anywhere. And so, if you have an oil field with flared methane, you can hook up a Bitcoin miner. Instead of flaring the methane, you use the methane to run the Bitcoin miners, and you'll turn that methane into Bitcoin. So it's a subsidy. For, uh, if you have a power plant that's um, um, getting decommissioned because of um, you know uh, installing all these renewable things that are taking up some of the capacity um, and you want to keep the power plant running and <laughs> until in the uh, solar panels fall apart which is you know only going to be a few more years you can keep the power plant running uh, by mining bitcoin with a lot of that uh, energy so i think it's it, it, it's going to increase but it's going to really help save a lot of energy infrastructure around the world by just offering it uh, a lot of Bitcoin. Interesting. I, since I, so you said you're going to write about models and predictions, so let me just, I have one thought about that that I want to share just in case it's useful. Um, I like that idea. So if you think about what, what are the models doing, like a lot of these models, particularly like let's take something like the 
coronavirus models or the like climate economics models, which I think are both cases where there is no ability whatsoever to model that with any kind of specificity. But notice in both cases, the government is assumed to have the right to take totalitarian control over everybody's life. And like you would never have these kinds of models in a free society given the knowledge that exists because they wouldn't be useful to anybody because you can't make those kind like the, the complexity of the predictions is just way too high beyond what can actually be made. So I think what happens with the models is people do these impossible predictive assignments with no accountability, but they get the reward of persuading bureaucrats, to, they get the reward of power. So you basically make these completely impossible predictions in the form of models, and then your reward is power. Whereas in a free society, you have to make accurate predictions. So there are a lot of things you would never even try to predict because you would know you couldn't predict them. And then the other thing is as, as citizens, you think about in a free society, yeah, people make predictions, and then we get to assess those and factor them into our overall context of knowledge. They can say, yeah, there's this virus and like you can think about it and here's what we predicted if you do this and this, but ultimately you get to decide how to deal with that. And you know, the same thing I think with uh, CO2 and there's a really high bar for the government to get involved at all. So I do, it's really interesting how the like modern modeling is, does really seem to be at least, at least certainly in terms of something that we live by is really a creation of, of fiat science, not freedom of science. Absolutely. My latest podcast was exactly about this because actually um, the, the way that I got into all of this, I was doing my PhD on uh, biofuels and on modeling energy there. And I just, uh, um, that's what got me into Austrian economics and into thinking about the world in, uh, in, in, in uh, terms of economic freedom, because I saw just how insane it was for a bunch of academics to think that they can figure out the answer to the question of, you know, how much of each fuel should the world be used? <laughs> As if it's just, you know, we just need the right nerds in the right university to run the right equations on the right computers. And then we'll figure out for everybody what they should be using. You know, you get this much of that and that much of this. And then you see that, uh, that that's an insane way of looking at the world. But it's what fiat academia does. That's what you got to do. If you want to keep your job, if you want to get promoted, if you want to get published, you need to play this game. You need to publish those things and you need to conclude that, yep. We need to give more money and power to the um, bureaucrats and to the people in government. That's how it works. Awesome. Well, we won't take away from your optimistic note earlier, but I just wanted to follow up on that discussion about modeling. <laughs> so yeah, I think it's an optimistic note that we're getting. I mean, I'm noticing with you and others in energy and in, in Bitcoin rather, I think we're seeing more rational people uh, you know, talking about energy. And you know, what I'm noticing in Bitcoin and other places is people they don't they don't have an answer to the human flourishing based arguments about energy. So they try to ignore it. And then at a certain point they can't uh, ignore it. I'm, I'm even on Twitter where I am not even that many people, like people like they'll discover me and then they'll like make some stupid argument. Or I don't say stupid, but like they'll make some, oh, like solar is cheaper. Like, don't you know that? Like, or, oh, don't you know that the planet is- I can't like believe it's 2021 <laughs> and you still think that coal is is important. <laughs> right, right, right. It's like the, the standard kind of platitudes, but then either I refute it or, or somebody in my circle refutes it. And then they just kind of shut up or, or they yeah. even accept it. And I think like- We've now the arguments are so clear in terms of the benefits and side effects of fossil fuels relative to alternatives going forward. Like, yeah, it's it's cool to me that we're seeing good people make the arguments and that we're not get like people aren't the supposed mighty force of the climate catastrophist. Like they don't have much to say. 
Absolutely. And it's amazing how they just, um, you know, a lot of them started attacking Bitcoin uh, recently on Twitter, for instance, and uh, Bitcoiners would just always respond with something along the lines of, well, they'd go and search their timeline and then they'll see that, you know, this guy flew um, halfway around the world for some conference or something like that. And, you know, why do you need to fly for this? Why couldn't you just use Zoom? Or there was a guy in Minnesota, you might know him, I forget the name, but he's one of these famous, um, pretty prominent hysterics. And he lives in Minnesota and he posted a picture of himself uh, in a jacuzzi on the rooftop of his apartment in Minnesota on, I think it was December or January. So you can imagine just how many, you know, how many oceans he had to boil in order to get that jacuzzi going. And I'm sure it was solar with Minnesota in the winter. Of course, I'm sure it was solar operated. So, I mean, this is the thing, like all of these people just become completely impotent in the face of the truth machine that is Bitcoin, because, you know, how are you going to convince these people that run Bitcoin, that have an entire global monetary system running on their computer? How are you going to convince them that, nope, you know, the money that has made you financially secure and independent and that has protected you from inflation and for many people, hyperinflation, like in my case, I used to live in Lebanon, I would have been ruined if I didn't have Bitcoin. Um, How are you going to convince people that this technology that really saved their lives in many cases is bad, whereas you getting a jacuzzi in Minnesota in January is good? I mean, how how does this work? And it's it's amazing to just see them shirk away. Like they they start with these arguments of, you know, I can't believe Bitcoiners and this is, you know, you're consuming more than one country for your stupid internet money. And then, yeah, well, how much are you consuming for your jacuzzi, for your trips, for all, for, for, for you getting on Twitter and saying all of the stupid nonsense that you're wasting people's time with, you know, your washing machine. Uh, why why do you get to use all these things that consume so much energy and then lectures about Bitcoin? And there really is no answer. I'm, my my favorite line is, you know, go and live for one year without fossil fuels and then come and tell us about how you want us to stop using our Bitcoin. Until then, it's just a matter of people choosing to spend their money on energy sources as they see fit. And, you know, the, 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 the virtue signaling of trying to pretend that my energy is good while your energy is bad is, is, is not working anymore, I think. I think I'm quite optimistic. This was the topic of my last podcast episode. I think it was number 64 on the Bitcoin Standard podcast. And it was about fiat economic modeling. And my optimistic conclusion was that um, <laughs> these people have messed with the wrong currency. <laughs> they have no idea what they've come across. And I think, you know, Bitcoin's not going anywhere. Um, they're not going to be able to kill Bitcoin. They're not going to be able to change Bitcoin. If you want to know why, read the Bitcoin Standard. But Bitcoin's not going anywhere. And they're just going to keep making the same tired arguments over and over and over again. And Bitcoin is just going to continue doing its thing and forcing people to ask harder questions about do we actually hate the fact that Bitcoin consumes energy? Is that a good thing or is it a bad thing? Yeah, I like the the moral confidence I think is revealing. Like When you have moral confidence, you break the moral monopoly. And so much of today's consensus is based on this artificial moral monopoly, but you see that once it gets challenged, it doesn't have any any substance. Uh, all right, we're running long. Thanks so much for coming on again. Uh, great to talk to you. Likewise, always a pleasure talking to you. And I got to have you again on my seminar now. Um, yeah, awesome. Well, you know, sometime this year for sure we'll do it. And uh, just so people know, so safedine.com, right? And spell yep. it again, just so people know. S A I F E D E A N.
He also has a very entertaining Twitter, so which I, I often uh, retweet. All right, I'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye.